morning to John chapter 2. And I just have to say again, uh, as I did on Friday at our Passover service, it is just so good to be with our church family. We've been gone for a couple of weeks, and, uh, and it's just it's so fun to see all of you. So, you know, I'd like to pray before we start, so let's, let's bow our heads. God in heaven, we have a great, desperate need to hear from your word this morning. We have a total, utter dependence on your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to allow the words that come out of my mouth to be clear and orthodox. And we just ask that you would condescend to us, that you would be present among us, that you would be very active here protecting us against evil and allowing us to worship you. I pray that your words would be planted into our hearts like seeds that grow abundantly. We are all addicted to our errors. We are in love with fool's gold and mud pies and I pray that you would overturn all of that give us a glimpse of truth and beauty this morning I thank you for the sweetness of fellowship with your people I pray that it would be worthwhile time not some Sunday or Easter ritual but help us to be awake to whatever your Holy Spirit wants to do among us this morning. If there's anything good that might come from my mouth in these few minutes, I pray that you would deepen it and widen it and help us to meditate on it this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 2. The more time that I spent looking at this passage over the last especially few days... Uh, the more I grew to love it, and I hope that you do too. This is the wedding at Cana. will be in verses 1 to 11. Um, you know, I've been in the church for all my life, and I don't know that I've ever heard this passage preached. Now, some of you have been alive for more than twice as long as me, and so you've probably heard it preached more than once, but... Uh, um, but there's just something about the party and the wine and all of that that just makes folks uncomfortable. And so I hope to thrill some of you and uh, ruffle the feathers of others. So Sometimes uh, we do that on purpose, right? It's good for us. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take about half of this and then do some explaining and then we'll do the other half, uh, because right in the middle of it, Jesus says something that's just so important, something that he's going to say many times through the book of John, that it's worth just taking a few minutes to try and understand what he's talking about. And so uh, usually I'll, I'll go a verse or two and just explain phrases as we go along, but, uh, but I'm going to take a, a five-minute or so break in the middle of reading in order to try and explain 
what he means when he says, my hour has not yet come. But let's begin at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So you remember at the end of chapter 2, and I just want to heartily encourage you to be reading along uh, in the book of John, read through the book of John a couple of times the next few months. Try and stay a chapter or so ahead of me so that the scripture is familiar to you when we open it together. And if you would like to study it more in depth, I have some really good books uh, on the book of John. Uh, But uh, you'll remember at the end of chapter 1, he gathers his disciples. Now, here's the first thing that he does with his disciples is he goes to a wedding with them. And so Jesus was there. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this would have been just a huge shame. And I think for, for any of you who have thrown a wedding, some of you recently... You, you know that it would be very embarrassing to run out of refreshments, you know, in the middle of a, of a wedding reception. That would just be embarrassing. It'd be something people would talk about for, for a long time. I remember at the such and such wedding that we ran out of food or something. So we understand kind of the embarrassment of that. I think we probably don't connect with the shame of that because this was a shame-honor culture. And so at this time... It was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide wine and other refreshments and to run out of that would have been shameful. In fact, it would have even exposed the bridegroom's family to a lawsuit from the bride's family for such an embarrassment uh, and this this sort of uh, problem that they would then have. All we remember, that I remember at her wedding, they ran out of wine. And so it would have been so shameful that would have exposed them to a lawsuit. So this is even a bigger deal than it would have been for us, just one of those cultural things that is good for us to understand. So here is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she says to Jesus, probably very innocently and probably just out of a, <laughs> out of a compassionate, very virtuous desire to help them she probably just is going to jesus saying what would we do about it do something do something you know like like a lot of mothers would say to an adult son you do what do something about this you know and and most of us would have said like what can i do about this there's no bevmo in cana (laughs) to go and get boxes of wine or something like this you know now jesus can do something about this and what happens many times through all these different accounts of what Jesus is doing is he sees a lot more symbolism going on than the people see. And it isn't until later, and in this case, probably years later, that they really understood what Jesus was doing and why he reacted the way that he does. Mary's probably just saying, well, do something. And his response is pretty intense. Verse four, and Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? A couple of things to say about this. First of all, don't call your mother woman. (laughs) This is not one of those times where, well, Jesus did it, and so (laughs) don't do that. Uh, At the time, that was a polite thing to say, okay? In fact, you remember when he's hanging on the cross and he kind of gives responsibility for the care of Mary to John, he also calls her woman. And so it, it doesn't have the kind of 
meaning that it would have for us. Like, woman, get that uh, thing out of the, you know, woman, get my glass of whatever or something like that. And so just to make that clear is he's not, uh, he's not showing us how to speak to our, to our mothers here, but uh, uh, he's not quite as rude as it seems. Uh, but the, the literal translation in the Greek is very difficult, which is why many of your translations, you're looking at the NIV or you're looking at the RSV or you're looking at the NASB. Everybody's got a different translation because literally, literally it says is, what is this to me to you? And so translators are thinking, what exactly is he saying? And it gets translated in a bunch of ways. And the ESV says, what does this have to do with me? And basically what what he's doing is distancing himself from uh, whatever it is that she's asking her to do. What does this have to do with me? Why are you asking me about this type of a thing? And uh, this kind of a phrase is used in other Greek literature, and it always has to do with uh, a little bit of a rebuke and distancing from whoever it is that originally asked the question. So here's where Jesus is coming from, kind of an intense response. And uh, we're going to see him do something even more intense next week, the clearing of the temple. So um, it's hard to say that Jesus is being rude, uh, but uh, this isn't a warm response to his mom. Uh, so however we're going to translate it, he's distancing himself from his mom. And part of what we see happening in his relationship with Mary all through the four Gospels is, you know, he is not her baby anymore. And her mom rights over him have ended at this inauguration of his public ministry. Uh, Now, my guess is that if she were to say, Jesus, could you please close those cupboards in the kitchen or something like that? Every time you come in here, you leave the thing open or whatever. My guess is that he would say, I'm sorry, Mom, or something like that. It isn't that he's just like, I don't want to talk to you or anything like that. But when it comes to something like this, which he's perceiving as very ministry-related, and he's about to do something miraculous, she has no authority over him. He receives all of his marching orders now from God the Father. And so her mom rights have ended in terms of a position of authority over her life. And that must have been very difficult for Mary. Uh, He's responding fairly intensely, and it's usually not good to kind of imagine what would have happened later. But my guess is that later they're eating around the fire or something. It's just the two of them, and she probably was like, I was just asking if you would, you know, whatever. All I meant was that type of thing. So my guess is that he wasn't just constantly don't talk to me woman type of a thing, but at least in this case and in the next account of what he's doing, he's fairly intense in the way that he starts his ministry. And it seems that he's doing this for the sake of the disciples so that they understand this is no mere rabbi. But this is the Son of God walking the earth, and he's got some pretty intense things to do. And so every time he does something, the disciples are like, did you see that? And that's what's going on here. But this has implications that were probably, uh, probably difficult for Mary to get used to. And uh, so what he says is, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And that's one of those 
phrases if you've not read the Bible before and you get to that, you think, what is that? And you're going to see this come up throughout the book. My hour, what does he mean by hour? What is this hour? And uh, the hour is really everything that we are celebrating right now during this season of the church calendar. Good Friday, uh, today, Resurrection Day, and Ascension Day coming up. Uh, it, it, the, the hour refers to a period of time that is celebrated by Christians worldwide during this time of the church calendar, particularly the exaltation of Jesus Christ at the crucifixion and the resurrection. So when Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about his death. Sometimes he's talking about his resurrection. So you smash those together and you say, when Jesus is thinking about his hour, he's thinking about that period of time from the cross to the empty tomb and all the things that are symbolized by that. And what he's saying right here, long time before the cross and the empty tomb, is I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not ready for the glory for the exaltation that will be brought to me at the resurrection and the crucifixion. So first, let's just explore the crucifixion. What exactly happened at the crucifixion? Long time after this, we're going to get, get to this maybe a year from now, at the end of the book of John, as we study it uh, paragraph by paragraph together uh, over this course of time. What we see is that Jesus experiences a real death, that his body dies. And this is not just kind of he's in a better place type of a thing. This, this is death. Is that rain? Wow. No egg hunts today. Uh, so what happens is Jesus' body, as it was taken off the cross, would have been completely dead weight. It would have been completely dead human meat there because Jesus Christ died. He died, and in his death, he is experiencing the wrath of God the Father. And in so doing, he provides effective propitiation for sins. Propitiation is the removal of wrath by a gift. God experiences indignation and wrath towards sin. Jesus Christ suffered the penalty of that. He suffered all of the wrath of God in the place of of everybody who repents of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. So what happens there on the cross is Jesus Christ dies. He's dead. He is handled and his body is cleaned. It is not breathing. It is white. It is bloodless. It was wrapped and it was put in a tomb. He died there at the crucifixion. The heart stopped beating. And this is a crucial piece to why we are all gathered here together today. John Owen, in his classic book, The Death of Death, wrote this, Christ so took and bare our sins and had them so laid upon him as that he underwent the punishment due unto them and that in our stead, and that in our stead, therefore he made satisfaction to the justice of God for them. So what happens, like for example, earlier in our... uh, confession at the beginning of the service in my mind what I was doing is running through various sins that the Holy Spirit was bringing to mind uh, some of which I had already confessed and I do believe in a rational sense that I've been forgiven for those things but because they just happened a couple of days ago they still bother me and so there's a process that I still like to go through of 
of reenacting that confession and, and accepting the substitutionary death of Christ in my place. And the language that I like to use, you've heard me use it on Sunday mornings, is to say, God, I pray that all of the punishment for those sins that I've committed would be suffered by Jesus Christ instead of me. That just helps my mind to understand the legal process that happens when I confess sin because sin has to be punished. And I know that deep down, which is why I feel guilt. And so this guilt, this unresolved guilt comes before the cross and we say, God, we pray, we know, we confess this stuff is ugly rebellion against you and your ways. We have not begun to love you or the people in our lives. We confess these things as sin and we pray that all of the punishment for that would be experienced by Christ. If Christ experiences the full punishment for my sin, that means that I don't have to experience that punishment. So that's huge. Because now my guilt has no footing. I have no reason to feel guilty anymore. So now it's an irrational process. Now it's an irrational guilt. And so this is why sometimes we linger in tears. This is why sometimes we come back to confession. Because we need to be reminded that as heinous as whatever it is that we did was, as awful as it was, as chronic as it is, The punishment for it is all put on Jesus Christ and was experienced in his death on the cross. Come on now. That's that. Amen. That is great stuff. That is the best. That is why it's called good news. That is great news. Because we would not be able to survive the punishment that Jesus Christ suffered. Death. People like us don't. Get up out of the grave. Some of you have had family members and friends die and you don't see them again after they die. If they're believers, we will see them again in another place. But dead people don't get up. And this ultimate death, the book of Revelation calls it the second death, is this eternal conscious punishment in hell. We cannot survive that kind of punishment. It is a total and eternal destruction of ourselves eternally experiencing the wrath of God, like standing in a fire and yet never being consumed by it. And so that's the crucifixion. This was the great moment. This was the great hour of the glorification and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And that's an important thing to say. We think about exaltation as Jesus Uh, gets up out of the grave and he goes and he sits at the right hand of God. And certainly that's true and that's biblical to say so. But the glorification of Christ is no less present in his experience of suffering on the cross. And that's key to Christian doctrine. And it's key to Christian practice because if Christ is glorified in suffering, the great suffering servant, then that has implications for the way that we suffer with each other and the way that we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. So there you have the crucifixion, real death, real wrath, and real effective propitiation for sins. But then we have the resurrection. When Jesus is referring to his hour, he's sometimes talking about the crucifixion, sometimes talking about the resurrection. It's an inseparable package. It's a package deal, the crucifixion and the resurrection. In the resurrection, listen to these words from John Stott in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, which I recommend recommend to all of you. It's an excellent book for just lengthily exploring what happened at the cross. And Stott says this, We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, 
The cross was the victory won, and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. Does that make sense? Let me just read that again. We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory, as though Satan experienced some victory by killing Christ. God was the one who killed Christ. It had to happen in order for satisfaction for sins to be made. Satan thinks he has a great victory, but he's the only one who thinks so. We're not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. So we can't miss this point. At the resurrection, God endorses, proclaims, and demonstrates victory over sin and death. So here you have this ministry of Jesus Christ on the cross. And his goal on the cross is to suffer a substitutionary death for his friends, for us. And what happens at the resurrection is God said, I accept that substitutionary atonement. I accept it. Not as a C-plus exam to pass the class, but as the ultimate and final payment for sins. So that's what's happening at the resurrection. Uh, God is a righteous judge who is glad to see the rebel go free and to even become part of his own family. Uh, What Jesus Christ did on the cross was effective. It worked. And the reason that we know that it worked is because he got up from it, raised by the power of the Father several days later. So in the crucifixion and resurrection, in this package deal, Jesus Christ is glorified. He is exalted. And it was this hour of glorification that Jesus wants to delay at Cana. Again, Mary is probably not thinking, hey, you know, glorify yourself as the long-awaited Messiah and all of that. She's probably just thinking this family, she's been invited to the wedding. She probably knows them. She wants to save them some kind of embarrassment and just very virtuously says, Jesus, do something. He's seen much more symbolism. We're going to get into the symbolism here in a minute because it's just cool. But he's seen way more going on here, and he's just saying, I'm not ready for this moment of exaltation and glory that will be mine, that will be given to me by the Father at the crucifixion and resurrection. And it will not be until John chapter 12, which we'll get to later with each other, uh, when Jesus finally says, okay, the hour has come. And it's just interesting that, a, that, that he says that right after a bunch of Greeks come to town to celebrate the Passover. So what you have is a bunch of foreigners who show up to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus watches them walk in to celebrate the Passover, and he says, the hour has arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's just neat, because... Most of us are not Jewish, right? Most of us are Gentiles. And the reason that we get to celebrate Resurrection Day is because Jesus includes that as an integral part of what he intended to do at the cross and the empty tomb was not just to save Jews, but to save all of us as well. We ourselves are foreigners who come to celebrate the Passover of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, as John has called him several times already in the first chapter, the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And so we 
Today, celebrate and remember his hour of glory, his great accomplishments on the cross and the tomb. But at this moment in Cana, here in chapter 2 of John's gospel, here at the beginning of his ministry, he wasn't ready for that. There was more to do yet before all of that would happen. And the interesting thing to me is that Jesus does the miracle anyway. And I have not read a commentator that has explained that very well. I mean, Jesus basically says, I'm not ready to do this, and then he does it. My guess is that he does it, but only his disciples see it and these servants who are serving the wine. And so he figures out a way to do what it is that his mother has asked him to do while still distancing himself from his mother's authority and while not revealing himself to all of Israel as having done this. The people at the party just think that the groom... uh, waited to provide the best wine until later and nobody there was confusion and nobody really knew what was going on so jesus figured out a way to do all of this in a way that we can only see in retrospect was so beautiful and and true but that's who knows i i I don't know jesus says i what does this have anything to do with me and then he goes and he does one of the coolest miracles that he ever did one of the big seven okay But before we leave this point, I'd like to make one more attempt at showing showing the glory of Christ at the the crucifixion and the resurrection as opposed to, compared to, uh, his ministry here in in, uh, John chapter 2. There is a difference. He is glorious, and he is always glorious and worthy of praise. And if people really knew who he was, they would be constantly falling down in front of him. But at this point, he's not ready for that. He's not ready to totally reveal himself. And I just want to make that really clear because I think that's one of his main points in saying that his hour uh, has not yet arrived, has not not yet come. And it hit me really hard when I read a hymn that was written by C.S. Lewis for Easter. And so listen to the way that Lewis just celebrates what happens at the crucifixion and the resurrection. This, this massive exaltation of Jesus Christ that gets us excited on Easter. And it's the reason that Easter is the most important Christian holiday and we celebrate these things. And the reason I, again, I'm going to read this is because I think what Christ is doing is he's saying, I'm not ready for that kind of exaltation yet. We have some things to do with the disciples and so on before we get to that point. So listen to this, 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 hymn is called Gates of Adamant Are Broken. Uh, Lords coeval with creation, seraph, cherub, throne, and power, princedom, virtue, domination, hail the long-awaited hour. Bruised in head, with broken pinion, trembling for his old dominion, see the ancient dragon cower, for the prince of heaven has risen, victor from his shattered prison. Loudly roaring from the regions where no sunbeam e'er was shed. Rise and dance, ye ransomed legions of the cold and countless dead. Gates of adamant are broken. Words of conquering power are spoken. Through the God who died and bled, hell lies vacant, spoiled and cheated by the Lord of life defeated. Bear, behemoth, bustard, camel, warthog, wombat, kangaroo, insect, reptile, fish, and mammal, tree, flower, grass, and lichen to rise and romp and ramp, awaking, for the age-old curse is breaking. You hear Narnia there. All things shall be made anew. Nature's rich rejuvenation follows on man's liberation. The last 
verse, Eve's and Adam's son and daughter, sinful, weary, twisted, mired, pale with terror, thinned with slaughter, robbed of all your heart's desired. Look, rejoice, one born of woman, flesh and blood and bones all human, one who wept and could be tired, risen from the vilest death, has given all who will the hope of heaven. You see, so at the crucifixion and at the resurrection, Jesus Christ did the most praiseworthy event of all history. And he is not ready at Cana to be perceived in that way. Verse 5. John chapter 2, verse 5. So he had said to his mom, what does this have to do with me? And his mom says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Which is a good policy with Christ. Don't you think? Do whatever he tells you. You wonder how she said that, right? He says, Mom, this doesn't have anything to do with me. And does she say, just do whatever he says to do? Like, what? Who knows? <laughs> Verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Put that on your little memory chip because we'll come back to that. What were they for? For the Jewish rites of purification. Sounds like one of those things you just read over, but it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get cool. Sermon, just, just these pages, cool. <laughs> Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So we're looking at a lot of gallons here. And the reason for these stone jars filled with water is because as guests would come into the wedding, their feet would be washed with this ceremonial washing water. So that's what these jars are for. And Jesus uses them for something totally different. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast, probably like a maitre d' type of character, like a wedding planner type of guy who's responsible for the food and all of that, which makes me think of the movie Father of the Bride, but. (laughs) when the master of the feast I hope I didn't just ruin the whole thing (laughs) when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine okay so it needs to be clear here that biblically the water becomes wine if you're a liberal you can reinterpret this to say that it's some magic trick or there were dregs in the bottom of wine and he added water and now it's more wine but that's not what the Bible says. You're either a Bible person or you're not. And so I'm going to assume that this is true. And he actually took water and he made it into something totally different because as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the agent of the Trinity who created all things and for whom all things were created, he can do whatever he wants with water. Okay, so Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim and he he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, which has an implication of inebriation, when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, right? Because nobody cares about what they're drinking after they're inebriated. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. I just think it's interesting that in the mind of this wedding planner, the people have reached the point of having had enough wine. I just think that's interesting. And you're just going to have to deal with that. Jesus made lots of wine when people had already drunk a lot of wine. And you're just going to have to deal with that. Verse 11. This, the first sign, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This seems to be the goal of all of his miracles to manifest his glory, particularly in front of the disciples, which means for us too. Okay, so there are lots of other people observing this stuff, lots of other relationships going on. Uh, But many of the things that we see Jesus doing are for the benefit of his disciples, and so we inherit all of those benefits as his modern disciples. And then this phrase at the end, and his disciples believed in him. So his goal was that he would be glorified, and so the disciples would go, whoa. And his goal was, was reached, and it had its intended effect. They believed in him. Nobody does stuff like this. Nobody can take one substance and just change it into another with a thought, with a word. He doesn't even taste it first. I mean, if you're a cook or a chef, you kind of want to taste the soup before you send it out. He didn't have to taste it. He made some meritage and sends it out, and he just knows this is the best wine ever. Can you imagine? Jesus Christ makes wine, and he doesn't need to taste it. He just sends it out because he's God. He can do that kind of a thing. And the disciples put these things together, and they're like, what else are we going to do? This is God that does things like this. Cool stuff. Okay. Now, a sign, this is a sign. This isn't just a a magic trick, but it's a sign. And signs signify things. So what does this signify? What's the meaning of the sign? And I would like to draw out two implications, two Bible themes that are signified at this little wedding 2,000 years ago. And the first is that the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom has arrived The first aspect of the sign comes from seeing that, look, the bridegroom is the one who's responsible for providing the wine. And so for Jesus to provide the wine puts him into the role of bridegroom, which is one of Christ's classic roles. Jesus is the bridegroom, Revelation 19.7. This is stuff that we're going to say to Christ when we're in heaven worshiping Christ together. We are going to say, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So whatever heaven's going to be like, there'll be some kind of a projector there and those words will be on the screen and we're going to say them together, okay? We're going to say, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We are going to say that together with people from all time who will be standing next to each other from every tribe and tongue, and we are going to say that together while facing and looking at Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom. We, the church, are the bride. It's one of the classic roles of Christ. And this helps us to see, I think, the stark difference between Jesus and his disciples and 
John the Baptist and John's disciples. There's a difference that's being made here because John has been talked about in chapter 1 and now here's Christ. John and his disciples took a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow means that you don't drink wine. And so that was not something that all Jews had to do, but if you wanted to go through a period of time of really committing yourself to the Lord, you could take the Nazarite vow and avoid certain things, including, including wine. Now, Jesus said that it was right for John and his disciples to not drink wine. Why? Because the bridegroom wasn't here. It'd be like starting a wedding reception, and you haven't had the wedding yet. There's no bridegroom. And so what's the party for? And so this is the, some of the connection that Jesus is making with John the Baptist is he's saying it's right for those guys to abstain because how are you going to start a party without a bridegroom? But hey, bridegroom's here. Well, that's party. This is what Jesus is communicating with, with, uh, with some of these symbols. So John and his disciples fasted from wine and now here you have Jesus Christ and he's at a wedding and it was common at that time for religious people to not go to weddings because there would be drinking there. And we wouldn't want to, you know, be uh, spoiled by that or tarnished by that or something like this. And Jesus shows up at a wedding. First thing he does with his disciples. And it seems to be on purpose because the symbol of marriage, and not just the symbol of marriage, but the symbol of celebrating a marriage with wine is important to our understanding of Jesus and how to worship him. I don't know how to say that more oomphedly. <laughs> it's not. It's not a word. The symbol of marriage, and not just the symbol of marriage, but the symbol of celebrating a marriage is important to our understanding of Jesus and how to worship him, how to follow him. There is something about joyful celebration that connects us to the realities of a glorified Jesus Christ. The reason that we can glorify God in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, is because our hearts have been made glad by Jesus Christ in his hour of glorification at the cross and the empty tomb. Let's say that you've got a husband and wife living together in some cold house, cold in many ways, many respects. You can sit down to a meal and pray before that meal and be warmed in that prayer by remembering this hour of glorification that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and that he was raised on the third day. And it is only sin and stubbornness that would prevent warmth from coming into that cold home through that prayer. And there is nothing that will bring more significant warmth to that home than the remembrance of the hour of Christ's glorification. And and look, what I just said sounds like some preacher saying, and you're all living this life of uh, whatever. He doesn't understand what we're going through. What I just said is true. There is nothing more worthy of our celebration than what Jesus Christ did at the cross and the empty tomb. Therefore, there is nothing that will bring warmth into cold places. There is nothing that will bring more joy into situations than remembering and celebrating the hour of Christ's glorification at the cross and the empty tomb. That's true. 
And I dare say that uh, I don't think that I have ever said anything more important than that in this pulpit. But there's more to this concept of bridegroom and the wedding party wine. Luke chapter 7 tells us that Jesus came eating and drinking. Okay, so John's disciples were ascetics, but here's Jesus and he comes eating and drinking. And this is again a stark contrast to John the Baptist. Asceticism is a religious practice where you uh, avoid worldliness and the things of this world in order to attain some higher level of spiritual awareness. And you see asceticism in many religions, and it was popular in Jesus' day, and Jesus was no ascetic. He was not one to hold himself at arm's length from worldly pleasures. Now, he was one who warned against overindulgence in worldly pleasures. But Jesus sets us free from ascetic, legalistic religiosity. Jesus brings gladness and celebration into a stern, bummer, over-religious religiosity. You know what it's like to be around a, 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 an over-religious person. Uh, the... This is the sort of person that that likes to clamp down on all the people around them. You have to do it this way, and you have to think this way, and it's all very serious and so on. And I think, you know, here's Jesus Christ coming into a party, making more wine, and it's an intentional communication that the old religious legalism of Judaism is over. Over. This over-serious and usually unkind gracelessness is something that is Christless. And he is the ultimate judge of sin. I mean, we all are going to have to stand in front of him someday and give an account. And that's probably not going to be a warm, fuzzy experience. But look, Jesus Christ, in spite of being the ultimate standard of right and wrong, is the one guy in the room that that prostitute wanted to come in and snuggle up to and say, you got to help me. He found that trick. He found that niche of being the ultimate standard of right and wrong, totally gracious. So that a ridiculous disaster of a sinner rebel can walk right into his presence and say, you got to help me. You got to help me. Look, we go to one side or the other. Are you the kind of person that clamps down on right and wrong so that no sinner would ever want to walk around you and religious people are uncomfortable around you <laughs> because you, they might wipe their nose the wrong way or something like this? Or one of you, are you one of those warm, fuzzy people that there's no standards and everything's great and, and so on? Jesus finds the, ba- the balance between both of those. He's the ultimate standard between right and wrong. And any rebel sinner like me and like you can walk right into his presence like a prodigal and say, you got to help me. You got to help me. And he's happy to see you. Kill the fatted calf. R.C. Sproul says the bridegroom had come, so it was time for the party to start, and the use of wine was symbolic of that celebration. In the Messianic age, wine flows abundantly. Amos chapter 9. Listen to this. This this is describing what will happen when the Messiah comes, which is probably why he was resistant with Mary because she's asking him to do something about wine at a wedding 
and he's, you know, boop, 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 boop. he's thinking all these symbols coming together, how do I do this, you know, and, and so on. And here's, because, because here you have the, and there are many examples. I used to have a page, I'm going to spare you, but there, there was a, <laughs> there are many of these prophets that are talking about what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And listen to this one from Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And it is Jesus Christ who makes that possible. It is Jesus Christ who makes that possible. And the psalmist praises God for wine to gladden the, man, the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart, Psalm 104.15. Now what is more worthy of praise than the arrival of Christ to take away the sins of the world? Jesus Christ is the wine, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the wine, and he is the reason for the wine as the long-awaited bridegroom. So this first point is that the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom provides the wine at an ancient wedding reception, and here is Jesus Christ, the penultimate bridegroom, providing wine as a miraculous inauguration of what he came to do. And I think all of that has serious and important and sober implications for how we think about Jesus Christ. One more thing here. The second and final sign that is signified at this wedding. There's a lot of things going on, so when I say final, I just mean in regard to my sermon. The second and last sign that I will talk about this morning that is signified at this wedding. Jesus, Jesus uses wine repeatedly as a symbol of his new kingdom, a kingdom that is radically different from the previous order of things in the Old Testament. So listen to this from, from Luke chapter 5. No one tears a piece from a garment and puts it on an old garment. I'm sorry, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Does that make sense? New, new fabric shrinks, you know, and you don't put new on an old because it'll rip the old. Okay. And what he's telling them there is that his new kingdom is incompatible with the old kingdom this old system of man-made legalism. Then he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskin. The reason for that is that wine ferments, which means it kind of gets bigger. And if you've got a cracked old wineskin, then it'll burst the wineskin. And again, he's communicating that this new kingdom that I am inaugurating is incompatible with the old system of legalism. 2 Corinthians 5.17, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so as Jesus Christ is changing this water into wine, he is pouring his new kingdom of grace into the world. Now, what is the heart of the new covenant? Now, you remember, because you've got this on your memory chip, from 2 verse 6, that the six stone waters... The six stone water jars were used for the Jewish rites of purification. 
The Old Testament law prescribed all kinds of ceremonial washings at the tabernacle. And these washings show us that a holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people. You have to be clean if you're going to be in God's presence. And so there were these symbols of being cleaned that were given to the people as ceremonial washings. And in the New Testament, in Christ, we learn that our real lasting cleanness comes from the blood of Jesus Christ himself. So that in Hebrews 7, we're told, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So when Jesus turns the ceremonial water, the water that is used for ceremonial washing, when he turns that into wine, wine being a symbol that he later claims at Passover as his own blood to drink, He is showing this change from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old old way of doing things, the old way of getting clean is no more because I'm here and my blood is going to do that now. No more ceremonial washings. Yeah. But there's more. The policy of ceremonial washing before a wedding feast is not in the Old Testament which isn't a a huge surprise to many of you because the Jews added many religious regulations, including this practice of washing guests before they entered a wedding. And John Calvin calls this a superfluous ceremony of their own invention. Jesus is not only inaugurating a new covenant by his blood, but he is also stamping out the legalistic silliness of Judaism and replacing it with grace. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves clean before a holy God. Nothing. It is only by drinking his blood, internalizing the atonement, that we are clean before a holy God. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own, and it is only righteousness Uh, that allows me to walk boldly into the presence of a holy God. And so Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me as a result of what happened at the cross and the empty tomb so that I can interact with the holy God, so that I can be his child, so that I can sit on God's lap and pull on his ears and be part of his family and adopted into his family. And it is only by drinking the wine of Jesus Christ, it is only by drinking his blood, it is only by internalizing penal substitutionary atonement that I can have access to God. So again, we have this confrontation of over-serious religiosity that thinks that there are things that I can do to make myself clean. There aren't. And over-serious religiosity wouldn't approve of this entire scene. A party with wine and guests who have already had too much to drink Oh, how the legalists through the ages have gone through gymnastics in order to reinterpret this passage. But here it is in its stark glory, our Christ who will not allow a stodgy undoing of what's happening here. Jesus is saying, I'm here, let's party. And you have this law water that has been turned to substitutionary blood wine. Law water, hope I'm in water, hope I'm clean water that is turned to grace-filled celebration 
So to just conclude, there are a lot of things happening in this gorgeous account. Joy and celebration instead of stern religiosity. Let that joy and celebration mark your homes. Let that joy and celebration mark your homes. There's, just, there, there's nothing else better to proclaim. Jesus is not your buddy that goes with you and makes things better. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, was raised again on the third day as an endorsement of that punishment so that we can be clean and live forever in God's presence. That truth, let that truth not simply be some rational thing that you agree with, but allow yourself to party on that truth. Celebrate that truth, not just here with your favorite song that we only sing every couple of weeks, but allow the joy and celebration of a wedding ceremony mark your homes. So lots of things happening here. Anti-shame. Anti-shame. It's just a huge embarrassment to run out of wine like this. And Jesus steps in and anti-shame. Jesus is the antidote for shame. Anti-legalism. A new covenant of wine blood. Truly, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist has said several times already. John uh, D.A. Carson says, we shall not go wrong in our understanding of these verses if we seek to discover how they breed faith in Jesus. And I just want to point you especially to what he does at his hour where he is glorified and all of this being symbolized here at Cana. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the glad benefits thereof. And so we too can respond with joy and faith to the one who was born in a manger, started his ministry at a wedding, all of it aimed at a cross and a tomb that truly saves us from death forever. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you are worthy of all glory and honor. And we have a tendency to either cut ourselves off emotionally from religion or to make it all about whether or not the melody of a song gets us excited. And God, I pray that you would replace all of that shallowness with a deep understanding and celebration of what you did in sending Jesus to this earth to die in our place. You are a great and awesome and gracious God. Please come back soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. Amazing.